You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Room up front if you're seemingly in the back there, come on down. Uh, Well, happy Memorial Day weekend. Um, If you are looking for something to do tomorrow on behalf of McFarland, the village, we invite you to our parade tomorrow at noon. It is an outstanding time. We do not throw the candy, but we hand it to you. We value your safety. Uh, So come on out. If you don't have anything going on, uh, come to our parade. It is Top-notch. Um, love to have you. Uh, but that's not why I'm here. Uh, Zach is in Ecuador, as uh, many of us probably uh, know, if you've been following along on Slack, just seeing the photos. Um, really encouraging to see uh, just what we get to participate in, uh, joining alongside our partners uh, down there just to see the training of pastors and leaders uh, so that they can influence um, Ecuadorians for Christ. Um, and so that's an amazing thing that we get to participate. Just by being a part of the vine, you are a part of this mission. Um, and so I'm sure next week Zach will uh, kind of present uh, just all the ways in which uh, God was at work, um, and we can rejoice in that together. So um, you're stuck with me, though, this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is James. Uh, I help out uh, leading with the kids and the youth and uh, part of the Wabisa City Group. So uh, it's my pleasure to be here with you this morning as we kind of finish out chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount uh, before we dive into chapter 6 next week. Um, So in in preparing for this morning, I was reminded of a a little story uh, from my own childhood, and I see a lot of kids over here, so this is awesome. Love it. Uh, I'm expecting a lot of amens and and hallelujahs, kids. Okay, or not. Uh, But yeah, so when I was a kid, uh, my father completely gutted our kitchen uh, and did a total remodel of our kitchen and added on a brand new uh, dining room. And it's, uh, today, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, it is incredible. It's enjoyed uh, tremendously by my family. Uh, when we all get together at holidays, there's like over 20 of us. Um, and so it's like, I don't know what we would do without this beautiful uh, addition that my dad put on. Um, but that being said, uh, that came at a price. Because for months, as a kid, for months, uh, we lived through that remodel. We didn't have a kitchen. So my mom set up shop downstairs in our laundry room. Uh, we didn't have a stove, but I remember that we had a microwave that was placed on top of our dryer. And that was how we cooked stuff. Uh, we ate in the basement. And we washed dishes in the utility sink. Um, they got clean, I think. But this is what we did for like months on end as my dad completed the kitchen. Um, and if you've lived through a remodel job, big or small, you, you can kind of maybe identify with us that remodeling is horrendously messy, it's frustrating, and it's uncomfortable just for how you can live your normal, typical life. And as we turn to Matthew 5 this morning, in a similar sense, uh, Jesus, in a real way, almost is like meeting us there with a sledgehammer. Because he's going to get to work on our hearts, remodeling our hearts to become more like him. And as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that Jesus is calling us to a series of commands, a standard of righteousness that really exceeds all human natural inclinations and capabilities. And this morning, the standard of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to, it's going to feel as if our very lives, our very hearts 
are being smashed in uh, like that of someone remodeling, like that of my home with my dad. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 48. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the tables in the back. Would love for you to be able to follow along with me this morning. Matthew 5, verse, starting in verse 43. This is Jesus talking. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if we can just be honest here this morning, I don't know about you, but these verses like run completely contrary to everything in my gut. Because if someone insults me, if somebody attacks me, if somebody wounds me, if somebody deceives me, the first thing I find in my heart is anger. And quickly. Yet Jesus' instructions is to love, not to hate. And it's like, how on earth, Jesus? Like, how on earth, Jesus, do you expect me to love that unlovable person when they've done that to me? Well, you know what? Jesus, in a real sense, is like throwing a hand grenade into my living room, into your living room. And he's blowing out all the walls. Walls which represent our former ways of thinking before Christ, centered around our self-preservation. For our natural way of thinking says, is this good for me? Does this benefit me? Does this move me forward? But it's this me-first mentality that Jesus uh, says is not helpful. And it's the very stronghold that God is looking to remake in all of our lives. From a me, me, me to a complete trust in God's vision and God's building plan for our lives. And so this is our big idea this morning, and it's a big idea, to love as wide as God, to love as wide as God, even our enemies. And we're going to ask three questions of our text this morning. Question one, what's the tradition? What was the tradition of the Pharisees? Number two, what is the truth of Christ. And number three, why? What on earth is our reason for keeping this truth of Christ? So what's the tradition? What's the truth of Christ? And why? Let's pray together. Father, we need your help this morning. We ask for your spirit to give us soft hearts, that your words would land uh, not on a hardness, but on a softness ready to receive. So we ask that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So our first question is, what was the tradition of the Pharisees? So look with me at verse 43. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And if you've been tracking with us in this passage, you know now for the sixth time Jesus has used this phrase that says, you have heard that it was said. Meaning that this is the teaching of the Pharisees. This was the tradition of 
of the Jewish people. So we could read it in a sense like this, that you have heard from your teachers, you have heard from your parents that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was just the accepted teaching. But here's what is interesting. The actual Old Testament law that this tradition originates from in Leviticus 19 verse 18 reads like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You catch the difference between the tradition and the Old Testament law? The Pharisees had completely removed the ending of that law and added their own flavor, omitting the phrase to love your neighbor as yourself and adding in its place something new, something that wasn't there, to hate your enemies. But why? Why would they alter God's command? Why would they blatantly change God's law? Well, the short answer is just to accommodate their evil and fallen hearts. You see, no matter how religious these elites were on the outside, they were in no way righteous on the inside, eagerly, like us all, looking for ways to justify their evil and fallen hearts, which drove them to eliminate or to adjust God's laws, removing that critical part of the command to love your, love your neighbor as yourself. And think about it. How do we love ourselves? We make sure that our interests are fulfilled, our needs are met, our desires accommodate, our hopes realized. We, friends, know very few limits of how to satisfy ourselves. And that is exactly the way God called his people to love their neighbors. But see, the religious leaders, they altered this law because they were only interested in a moderate love. A love that could satisfy what they thought could satisfy a standard of righteousness that God would still accept. And remember again that this text is part of a much larger passage that confronts the Pharisees' mishandlings of God's law. These were leaders that were so focused on the superficial outward conformity to the letter of the law. They made sure that they conformed to what the law demanded. But if a strict obedience allowed them to do something other than what God had really intended, they ignored the true spirit of the law. A strict reading of the law said, love your neighbor. But the law did not say what to do with those you did not consider to be your neighbor. Meaning the Jews could define the definition of who their neighbor was. So you could understand neighbor to mean simply the person that lives next to you. That you're obligated to love that person but free to hate those who do not live next to you. Or you could define neighbor as the equivalent of like a fellow Jew or someone of your same people group. So you're obligated to love those individuals. But if you're non-Jewish, you do not have to love them. All this to say, when you miss the spirit of the law, you always interpret the law in convenient and comfortable ways. And they called anyone they wanted to love neighbor and anyone they wanted to hate enemy. Family, Jesus is never, never interested in our flawed human thinking. So Jesus elevates the command. He, he puts it on a higher level than that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, hate your enemies. Jesus contradicts it in verse 44 and says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Which brings us right into our second question as we pivot from the tradition of the Jews to the truth of Christ. And what is that truth of Christ? Look with me at verse 44. 
But I, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So there's two commands there, right? To love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. So let's talk about both. First, to love. You know, certainly if, if we are the ones who harm somebody, these words sound pretty good. That no matter what I did, you're called to love me. But when we are the ones who have been harmed, these words are crazy nonsense. It defies all human logic. Love them, but God, do you know X, Y, and Z what they've done to me? But still standing in our text is this, is this promise, this command from Jesus to love your enemies. And it's interesting that Jesus uses the word agape for this word love. Agape love is a love of the will. It doesn't need emotion. It doesn't need attraction. It's just the love of the will. And it's a love that seeks another's greatest good at any expense. And it's defined, as we know, by 1 Corinthians 13. We know this verse. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It is not arrogant. It does not insist on its own way. And ultimately, it's a love that is fully embodied by the person of Christ. A love that could not be silenced by even the most cruel torture and death of crucifixion. You see, this love of the will, this agape love, it's, it's superhuman. Yet, yet, it's the standard, it's the standard of love for Christ's kingdom. If an enemy seeks our harm, we are called to seek their good. And this is godlike. Remember with me in Romans 5, Paul writes, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, do you hear that? That God loved us when we were his enemies. Therefore, it's God-like to love your enemies. God gave you and I the best opportunity to experience and enjoy the grace of Jesus, and he's calling us to do the same even to our enemies. Meaning we actively position ourselves to love our enemies in a way that is good, in a way that is helpful for them to have that same best opportunity to know God's grace. And I don't know about you, but that is terribly hard for me to get my mind around. But yet we have to apply this to our lives. And I ask you just to take a moment and consider in your life, are there individuals, are there people that you would place in that category of enemy or maybe just an unlovable person? As you take that moment, we have to ask ourselves this question because this is what the, test, the text is asking us, as hard as it is, is how do I love this enemy in a way that is good and helpful? for them to have the best opportunity to know God's grace? How do I love this unlovable person in a way that is good and helpful for them to have the best opportunity to know God's grace? You see, Jesus is challenging us this morning to see if the love of God that has come to us flows through us to others. Secondly, in verse 44, the second half, we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And at first glance, prayer may seem like the lesser of the two commands here that Jesus lays down, but I think it's not. 
Because when you sincerely pray for another, you're taking that person into your heart and asking that our almighty God does what is best for them. A pastor, a, long, a pastor I've known for a long time, and he's been doing it for many decades, once told me that whenever he had two individuals in the church who were at odds, he would invite them into his office, and he would ask them to join him on his knees in prayer. And he would say, oftentimes, those who came into his office as enemies would get up as friends. See, it's difficult to pray side by side, an enemy and a friend, without learning to love. Why? I I ran across this quote by Spurgeon. I think it says it really good. It says, prayer is the forerunner of mercy. Prayer is the forerunner of mercy. And what is mercy? A definition that Emily and I have been challenged by for many years now is this, and it'll be on the screen, and it's, it's very profound. Mercy is that kindness and compassion, which is a passion to suffer with or participate in another's ills or evils in order to relieve, heal, and restore. Mercy is freely and gladly taking another into one's heart just as they are and supplying the needed good of life to build up and to bring to peace. You want to know the quickest way to enlarge your heart to that unlovable person? You pray for them. And a few years ago, Emily and I were given a prayer just titled Mercy Prayer. And I can post the fullness of it on Slack later, but here's just a portion of it. And it's a challenging prayer. It goes simply like this. It says, bless, and you fill in the the individual's name. Bless them. Do for him or her, Lord, instead of me. Flood him or her with every need-filling mercy. Friends, that's an impossible prayer to pray sometimes. A prayer at times that I will admit I flat out refuse to pray. Because I know when you commit to praying like that for somebody, God enlarges your heart towards them. And there's just, frankly, some people in my life over the years, I'm like, I don't want God to do that. I have no interest in that becoming true, but I have experienced it. Because when your heart is bent towards mercy, you find yourself loving the unlovable. And I think, you know, our ultimate example is Jesus, right? His own life. As, as his very life, his humanity was being ended by evil men driving those iron spikes through his hands and feet. What do we find Jesus doing? Praying a prayer of mercy for these very men. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. So again, I ask you, is there someone in your life, is there someone in my life that we're angry with? Or hurt by. That you sense that maybe God is asking you to pray for. Is there someone in your life that you're angry with or hurt by? That you sense maybe in a new way or a deeper way. But sense God asking you to begin praying for that individual. And here's what's crazy. The cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence Christ's prayers. And even thinking of Stephen, right? The stones that were smashing him. The stones could not stop Stephen's prayer for his attackers. But I wonder what might silence my prayers? What might silence your prayers of your enemy? What might silence your prayers of your enemy? 
You see, the truth of Christ calls us to love and to pray for our enemies. And I'll, I, I'm going to keep being honest with you guys this morning. This is, this is tough stuff. I've wrestled with this, asking questions like, if we just love everyone, then the bad people keep hurting people. Does Jesus deny the idea of justice? Are we just supposed to love everybody no matter what they do to us? And as I wrestle with these questions, I'm, I'm convinced through Scripture that love does not mean that we ignore evil and pretend it doesn't exist, for we should be stirred by injustice and advocate for the oppressed. That's what Christ did. But true love recognizes something. True love recognizes that vengeance is the Lord's. Romans 12, 19 is a powerful verse that vengeance is the Lord's. And this, this is actually really good news. Because justness and rightness in our world is no longer dependent on us as flawed humanity. But it's fully dependent on a merciful and loving God. In a room size of this, I know many of us have probably personally experienced the profound loss and pain of maybe a wrongful abuse or accusation or an attack. A deep sense of pain caused by maybe a family member or a significant other, employee, a friend. Someone that we rightly, by all definitions, term them as enemy. That's not lost on me this morning. I acknowledge this real and awful reality for maybe many of us. But I want to be clear. Loving our enemies does not happen overnight. It's not instantaneous. It's, it's a process and it's a journey. And it's something God calls us, through, through Jesus' words, he's calling us to lean into it. Not to harden against it but have a softness and leaning into it to live it out. And this morning, for some of us, this may just be an initial beginning conversation that you have with somebody of what God might be stirring in your heart. For others, this may be something that you've known for a while, and God might be calling you to take that next step in following through um, these words of Christ. As I've thought about <laughs> this terribly uncomfortable idea of loving our enemies, I thought about uh, a story from Scripture, and we're going to spend a few moments here, and it's the person of Jonah. Jonah, I know, is probably one of the first Bible stories that many of us heard, right? And he's remembered often as the prophet who spent three days in the belly of a fish. And, and so we tend, because that's what we remember of Jonah, we tend to think that that's probably the most important part to the story. But I think Jonah's story is going to be super helpful for us this morning. So let's check out Jonah's story. And if you want to turn there, you can. I'll put some of these up on the, the screen. And my bookmark fell out. So now I have to search for this minor prophet with you. Um, it's one page in this book. And if you go by it, good luck. Oh, there it is. I did have it marked <laughs> right there. All right, so in Jonah, that's where we're going we're gonna to be checking out Jonah's story for a, a few moments today. Um, so if you're Jonah chapter 1, I'm on page 502 if you have this Bible. Uh, but here's, here's what it starts in chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. 
don't know how to say that. Saying, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So here we have it, Jonah getting a large task from God to go and preach to Nineveh. And Nineveh was home of the Assyrians. And if you know your Bible, Assyria is an evil and wicked nation. In fact, one entire book of the entire Old Testament is dedicated to the judgment. Nahum is is all about the prophetic judgment that will come on the Assyrians. And so Jonah knew about the city's great wickedness. And Jonah has no desire, right, to go and warn these people of the impending judgment. So as we know the story, right, Jonah actually goes in the opposite direction. He books a passage going the opposite way. But his efforts don't work, do they? Right? He's barfed up onto the very shore that he didn't want to even be at. And I can't help but think as Jonah goes into Nineveh after being in the belly of the fish for three days, like what he looked like. He certainly didn't sound great. It says that he preached in the city saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not a really inspiring message, but the fact is that this was actually the most loving thing that God could have done. To tell the Ninevites that they only had 40 days before he would destroy them. And as a result of that message we find out in the book of Jonah, the entire city believes and repents. And God spares them. And something we probably don't think about often is that we're going to meet some of these Ninevites before the throne of Jesus in heaven. But Jonah, and I suspect like many of us would as well, Jonah's having a hard time accepting or feeling the love that God has given the Ninevites. Look with me, chapter 4, those first few verses says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. You know, I think all of us, typically, at least I do, thought that Jonah was just a coward prophet who didn't want, who was afraid of the Ninevites. But scripture tells us that Jonah fled not because of that, but he fled because he knew God was a God of love and mercy. And Jonah did not want the Ninevites, his enemies. He didn't want God to show mercy on them. He wanted God to roast them like Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice as these words are still on the screen, notice how Jonah accurately describes God and his attitude towards those who do not love him, that God is gracious, pleased to give them the things they don't deserve, that God is merciful, pleased to refrain from giving them what they do deserve, that God is slow to anger, willing to give them time and opportunity to repent of their sins, that God is abounding in steadfast love, and that God is one who relents from disaster, not willing any should perish, but all should come to repentance, even his enemies. I don't know about you, but that's not a totally accurate reflection in my own heart towards those in my life who are unlovable. And likewise, Jonah does not share the same attitude of God. Jonah is deeply, deeply angry over the way things turned out for the Ninevites. So Jonah, we find, he's sitting on a hillside overlooking the city of Nineveh. I think he's still hoping for that fire and brimstone, that he would have the best seat possible to see the show before him. And it's there that we see that God causes a plant to grow up, right? A plant to to give him shade from the the blistering heat of the sun. 
And it says that Jonah loves this plant. In his state of mind, I think he's probably thinking, look, this is the last friend I have on earth. Like, this is it, this plant, me and him, to the end. But in the middle of the night, God uses a worm to bite the plant and kill it. So when Jonah wakes up in the morning, he finds that his precious plant is dead. And we see that he weeps, and he wishes that he would be dead too. And that's when God's message comes to Jonah and I think it comes to us as well, from the arguing from the, the lesser to the greater. Check it out. Verses 10 and 11, the last two verses of chapter 4, says this. And the Lord said to Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You see, Jonah cared more for this silly plant and the comfort it provided from the blistering sun than that of the 120,000 people in their impending judgment of eternal flame. And God leaves Jonah. This is how the book closes. It's a lingering question. God leaves Jonah with this lingering question and leaves us with this lingering question by saying, should I not pity Nineveh? Or to say it another way, should I not have mercy? Should God not have mercy? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, God should have mercy. He's the creator of everyone and everything. You see, God wanted to expand Jonah's understanding of God's targets of mercy. For Jonah to see the Ninevites not as his enemies, but as a people created in the image of God, yet without direction or ability to find their way to God. And God wanted Jonah to see that he is to live as God always created him to be, which is to live as a conduit of blessing to all people on earth. This this, this idea, this, this has changed my entire attitude to those in my life who are unlovable. Understanding the target of God's mercy is for all people. They're not my enemy. They're created in God's image. Recently, and a little bit ironically, there is, um, there's, there's an individual in, in our neighborhood that has, has become extremely unlovable for, for my family and really for the entire neighborhood. And, you know, every time I, I go out our back door, we're up on a little bit of a porch and um, this individual just immediately meets us with profanity, just cussing us out. Uh, and really, to my knowledge, there's no reason, there's no, um, uh, I'm not sure why this is, uh, this, why this person is doing this, but it's caused me to like avoid going out my back door. It's caused me to bring my daughters inside because I don't want them to hear this language. It causes me to look over my shoulder to see if the coast is clear. And I don't share this to put this person down. I share this to say that if I'm honest, I don't have any love in my heart for this individual. The more I get verbally assaulted, the more I shrink away from any idea of loving this person. And, and the thought of like taking this individual in prayer, putting this person in my heart, asking the Lord to do a great thing in their life... It, to pray that prayer that I shared earlier, that God do this for them instead of for me, like that rattles my inside world. It shuts me down. 
But yet, that being said, like the command that Jesus has given us, it's still standing. The command says, James, love and pray for those who persecute you. As I have loved you, loved others. And this is a pretty small example and pretty micro. But the challenge in front of us all is this. Do we live more like Jonah or do we live more like Christ in our life? Do we live more like Jonah or do we live more like Jesus? You see, Jonah preferred to die rather than to live in a world in which people he hated experienced God's mercy. But Jesus willingly died so that all people can experience his mercy. And that's our calling as followers of Christ, learning how to live out this really ultimate love, to love as wide as God, even to our enemies. And if you're like me, the, the question I got is why, right? Like what on earth is my reason for loving and praying for my enemies? And I think there's three reasons as we close out our passage in chapter five. So turn with me back to Matthew, chapter five. There's three reasons that I see in those last few verses for our reason for loving and praying for our enemies. The first one is this. When we live this command out, we reveal our true identity. When we live this out, we reveal our true identity. Verse 44 says this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus is not teaching here that if we love our enemies, then we become children of God. Rather, loving our enemies is the proof. It's not the payment, but it's the proof that the power of kingdom has entered your life. And if you've ever been in a crowd or if you've ever, or, or what, have you ever been in a crowd and you, you see a kid like run through and then you see an adult run through after them, you can kind of sometimes put it together like, oh, that child belongs to that adult. Or if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can, you can watch one of my daughters and then you can watch me and you're like, oh, that's where they get that from. Uh, but oftentimes the behavior of a child looks exactly like the behavior of the adult, Right? Likewise, we are to show ourselves to be true sons and daughters of God in the world when we exemplify his extraordinary love and mercy. Because it says in verse 45, it speaks of his love and mercy when he says, For he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Second reason, when we live this command out in our lives, we become distinct from our world. When we live out this command in our lives, we become distinct from the world. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? As, as we know, tax collectors obviously collected taxes from their own Jewish people uh, for the Roman government. And that made them traitors. Uh, that made them the, the worst kind of sinner in, in this culture. And to be a Gentile is to be someone outside of the circle of God's covenant. That's strangers looking in from the outside. And yet everyone, Jesus is saying, everyone in our world, even the worst of sinners, tax collectors and Gentiles, loves, can love someone who loves them back. Anyone can love the lovable person. There's nothing remarkable about that. 
Dogs, they do it every day, right? Cats, not sure. I think about my own marriage, right? And my relationship with my wife, who loves me deeply and profoundly and is for me and advocates for me and supports me. But I find it incredibly hard at times to love her. Even with someone that loves me, it's hard to love the other person. And so I think back to my neighborhood now. It's a place that's filled with neighbors who we, every afternoon we gather and we just chum. We just talk, you know, like just helping each other out with a project. They help us watch our girls. It's, it's a great place to live. It's a wonderful place to live. Yet there's a neighbor who rips on my family and rips on countless other neighbors' families as well. We're not the only recipients of this, this verbal assault. And, and so that, that, that leaves us as neighbors, right, oftentimes with this, this speculation, this gossip, and this general avoidance of this one house. And so every day as I take my girls for a walk after work, you know, around the block, I, I have a decision to make. Do I act like Jonah or do I act like Christ? Because if I act, if I choose to act like Jesus, I'm going to love and I'm going to pray for my enemies, my neighbor, my neighborhood. And and as I do that, I know I'm going to become more and more distinct from the world and how my neighborhood chooses to respond to such people. I mean, would it be crazy for me to invite this family into my home for dinner, to get to know them, to love them? When we live this command out in our lives, we become distinct from the world. And the third reason is when we live this command out, we live consistently with our glorious identity. We will live consistently with our glorious identity. Jesus closes with these words in verse 48. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In this closing statement, it's, it's a command. To perfectly love. Thanks, Jesus. Okay. To perfectly love, meaning to love as wide as God, even to our enemies. But I can't help but notice that it's stated really in the future tense. That is that we shall be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. It's a command but also a promise. A promise that one day we will be perfected in love as our Father in heaven is himself perfect in love. And this makes it a wonderful call to become increasingly now, though imperfectly, what we will one day be complete in his glory. And so we should love our enemies. Because when we do so, we're simply acting in a manner that is consistent with our glorious destiny. So where have we been this morning? We talked about the tradition of the old, uh, the, the Pharisees, the teaching of the Jews to love your neighbor but to hate your enemy. And then the truth of Christ who elevates it to loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. And we talked about why. That it's part of our identity as Christ followers. That we are to live distinct from our world and consistent with our eternal destiny. And I don't know about you, but as I've worked through this text, I don't think there's probably a harder command on our lives. And I felt very much like a sledgehammer bashing down the walls of, of my heart. It's because loving as, as wide as God is incredibly hard and uncomfortable. And, and honestly, friends, we have absolutely no shot of doing this on our own. 
But look back at the very first words of Jesus' message of the Sermon on the Mount. Because this is our key. This is our key to living out this command and the other commands we find in chapter 5. Verse 3 says this. The first words of Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We don't enter the kingdom of heaven because of the moral resources we bring to the table. We enter the kingdom of heaven when we understand that we do not measure up. Realizing that we're poverty-stricken, helpless as a child, and sin-sick in need of a physician. Which leaves us, honestly, nowhere but to fall on our face before God. Recognizing that apart from Christ's strength within us, we will fail to love our enemies. But here's what I'm convinced of, Vine family. That as we come to Jesus, as we come falling on our face before him, that as we come and see the incredible mercy that he has given to us, that then and only then will we begin to position our lives in a way that is good and helpful and gives all people, including our enemies, the opportunity to see and experience and enjoy the very same grace of Jesus that we enjoy. For while we were enemies of God, Jesus flooded us with his mercy. And it's now our calling as his sons and daughters to live our lives as a giver of mercy, even to our enemies. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough command. And Lord, we pray in all sincerity, Lord, that you would break our hearts like your heart is broken for those who are perishing. Expand our understanding of those deserving of your mercy. May our lives be a sign pointing all people to you that we might instill hope of you showing the same mercy that you have shown to us. Lord, we need your help. Lord, this is not in us, so I pray that we would catch even greater and greater glimpses of the mercy in our life that we truly might live our lives as givers of mercy. In your name we pray, amen. Well, now we have the opportunity 